0: and this is here in Alabama. In season 1, I introduced you to some of the musicians I have come to know in Perry County, Alabama. But now I'm turning back to Birmingham where I live and where I got to know my guest for this episode, Dr. Demondre Thurman. Demondre is a world-renowned euphonium player who commutes from Alabama to teach at Indiana University in Bloomington, one of the best music schools in the country. He has mentored a whole generation of young, low-brass players in Alabama through his teaching, both his private teaching and at Samford University, Alabama State, and the University of Alabama. He is a hero and role model for many. That includes Isaac Lanier, the charismatic former band director of Robert C. Hatch School in Uniontown, whom I interviewed for Episode 4. But you may not know what a euphonium is. I asked DeMondre about his instrument. And it actually means good sound, right?:
1: Yeah, beautiful sound, yeah. The euphonium is a member of the brass family, you know, if you think about the brass family being trumpet, French horn, trombone, tuba. euphonium is a member of that. And so the euphonium functions very much as like a a miniature tuba, similarly to the piccolo and the flute. They're exactly one octave apart, so they make a similar sound. But because of the size, the timbre is a little bit smaller. And and in that way, uh, it has a, I guess, clearer sound than the tuba might have just because of its low range. And... The thing that I like about it as an instrument is it has all of the range of the trombone and of the French horn, but it has the depth of sound and the warmth of the tuba. So the combination really makes it quite the the vocal sounding brass instrument out of the bunch, you know, in my opinion, that's my opinion. And it has a lot of the same level of dexterity. That's the overall speed that you can play that a trumpet player might have. And so I feel like that combination of such a warm, rich sound with virtuosity at at its disposal makes it a pretty dynamic brass instrument.
0: It has it all, doesn't it? (laughs) It
1: has it all. Yeah, there's literally nothing you could ask for that the instrument can't do.
0: You might say DeMondre has found his own unique voice through playing the euphonium. One of the main things I like about podcasting is that I really enjoy the sound of the voices. I mean this in a very literal sense. Demandre Thurman, Isaac Lanier, Francis Ford, Pilar Murphy, Lloyd Bricken. Each one of these people has a voice that I find fascinating, both in the literal sense of sound and also in the metaphorical sense of their life experience and the stories they have to tell. Demandre may have gravitated to a vocal sounding instrument, partly because of all the vocal music he heard growing up. I asked him about his early musical influences.
1: Growing up in a Southern household, there's no escaping music, you know, (laughs) there's a lot of what what was, uh, you know, gospel and sort of church music that was happening in my house all the time. I grew up uh, in a house with my mom and my grandmother. So I basically had two moms. I called them both mama. And my grandmother, you know, really did listen to a lot of gospel and a lot of, you know, sort of hymns and church music. And my mom, in addition to those things, was listening to R&B. So I heard a lot of Temptations and four tops and OJs. And so I always had some kind of music going on in the house. And for me, music outside of the house was early hip hop. I was listening to Africa Boom Bada and Run DMC and uh, Grandmaster Flash and, you know, just all these old school hip hop guys from, from New York. And so I had all of that music happening in my, in my head at once. And I was always sort of drawn to TV theme music cartoon soundtracks. One of my favorite ones was The Greatest American Hero. Believe it or not, I'm walking on air. Yeah, I <laughs> love, love that. So I always was sort of, gra- I always sort of gravitated towards music and I, I remember it all really, really vividly. And so this is when, you know, four or five, six years old, this is that time in my life. My first time sort of being introduced to what I would call, you know, sort of formal music or, you know, learned music was when I turned 12 and went to junior high school in preparation for that, you know, the junior high school had come down to the elementary school where I'd gone Flatwoods Elementary in Northport, Alabama to recruit, you know, they brought like a pet band kind of thing and they played some music. And one of the things they played was the Pink Panther theme song, which, you know, again, being a cartoon nut, I was really into it. So I thought that was fun. And so I thought band would be something cool. My friends from the neighborhood who were older were in it. I thought it would be fun. So I came to uh, that fall semester of my seventh grade year not having an instrument. I really wanted to be a drummer, but my mom told the band director that I couldn't be a drummer because I lived in an apartment. I lived on the second story of an apartment. And so the noise level wasn't gonna be something that I could, I could really do. And so I tried a bunch of different instruments uh, and settled on the euphonium. It was just something that I loved. I loved the way it sounded, you know, once I'd learned how to play it, I just sort of fell in love with it and played it for fun really until I got to college. You know, I, I thought I would be an engineer this whole time that I was, uh, you know, going through middle school and through high school, I thought I would be an engineer. Music was just something that I did for fun.
0: Music may be Demondre Thurman's career path, but I think he still does it for fun. I told him he was a musical omnivore.
1: One of the things that I talk to my students about a lot is staying musically curious. The way that people write music now is from a pretty wide perspective, we're not just writing, you know, we're not just playing music that's written in the classical style or in a romantic style or the Baroque style. You know, people are integrating, you know, hip hop vocabulary, jazz vocabulary, Latin music uh, vocabulary into the compositions. And so if you can trace the root, you know, of that particular part of of a piece of music, you have a better chance of performing it in a way that, that the composer would have intended. So that's the way that I sort of frame it. But other ways that I get to talk about it is, you know, particularly with hip hop it's the steadiness of the pulse and how rhythm functions on top of the steadiness of the beat. And the fact that there's so many different layers uh, rhythmically in hip hop, you know, usually there's a, a pretty fundamental baseline and then there's any number of layered, things just in the track, let alone what happens when the rapper starts adding that level of rhythmic complexity on top. So just being able to dissect dissect all of those different lines, you know, you, you become more aware of how pulse and rhythm are really two different things and how they need each other.
0: With all these different musical interests, DeMondre had a hard time naming a favorite type of music to play when I asked him about that. That's partly intentional, he knows he won't necessarily like everything he plays, so he tries not to think in terms of emotional favorites. One piece did come to his mind, though.
1: So there's a piece that I enjoy playing, I think, the very most, It's and it's because of some of the outside Components. A piece, a piece that I really enjoy playing is the Heritage Concerto. It's written by a friend of mine, Anthony Barfield. He's an African American composer uh, living in New York City. And strange to talk about the cross section of classical music and hip hop. He actually, you know, makes his living as a producer of pop and hip hop music. He wrote a piece that I feel like encapsulates the struggle of the African American male and the triumph that could be the African-American male. And so he wrote it sort of based on the old uh, African sort of components, constructs of being an African-American. He, the first movement is entitled Building of the Pyramids, for example. And so you hear this constant you know, struggle. Everything feels like it's going uphill all the time. And there's this tension in the music that's really kind of palpable. Uh, the middle movement is called the Nile, and it's supposed to represent sort of serenity and peace. And then the last movement is the triumph of King, you know, Thutmose III pretty powerful figure in, in Egyptian time. And so it's a, it's a piece that I really kind of connect with, you know, because there's always some sense of struggle and some sense of, you know, overcoming that needs to happen. I tend to carry myself in a way that's pretty still. I'm, I'm never really up or never really down. I'm just sort of even, you know, in that, that second movement, you know, really sort of resonates with me in that way. And I know that if I'm doing my best work, it'll be perceived In a good way, in a positive way, and so that's the third movement. And so it's it's a piece that I feel like I can identify with. You know, there are pieces that I enjoy, you know, the music equally as much, but in terms of the totality of of performing, this piece is probably my favorite.
0: Part of the appeal of the Heritage Concerto seems to be its connection to the struggle of the African-American male, as DeMondre put it. I asked him to describe that struggle from his own perspective.
1: Well, the struggle is in some ways self-explanatory. We saw it play out in a really major way uh, back in uh, March, uh, which, with the passing of George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd. And I don't know the the, the full circumstances of, of, of that whole situation, but, you know, what we saw clearly, you know, was someone who wasn't trying to struggle to get away from the authorities or anything like that. And, you know, it was literally killed. And so that's something that black men are taught could happen to you as early as you can comprehend what that might mean and so just carrying around the baggage of you know having essentially to be on your best behavior at any given moment or you know something life-threatening you know might happen to you um it's kind of a a tall order. That's a that's a that's a big ask for you to have to behave like that. Being a male, you know, that's that's just a part of it that I can identify with. You know, I've seen you know what you know my mom and my grandmother had to go through. Both my grandmothers, for that matter, had to go through. But I can't really identify with that. I don't I don't know what it's like to be in that situation. So I, I said male specifically because that's the one that I walk in. I literally can can uh, identify with that. So that's just one example. You know we're always taught from early age that we have to be much better than our counterparts of other races just in order to be seen in a certain way. So there's you know achieving a certain level and then knowing that you know in order to for it to be noticed it has to be one notch above. That's a tall order. And the way that sort of cross sects with music is very much in the same way hey you can learn all the notes learn all the rhythms turn all the phrases play all the dynamics but there has to be something special about it you have to really make sure that what you're saying comes across if if it's not comes across as being genuine being honest you know being vulnerable you know these are all things that we can get away with from behind the horn because we're actually not speaking words we're just playing music and if you do it the right way you're allowing people to infer their own thoughts and notions about it if you deliver it a certain way and you never have to agree or disagree you know that's for everyone else to decide how 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 your music makes them feel or how they respond to your music making and so just teaching with that level of excellence and being able to draw specific comparisons to my Black male students to say, hey, here's something that I literally did walking in your path so I can pass it along in that way. Whereas, you know, I don't feel like my Black female students or, you know, my white students or my Asian students, they're, they're not at a disadvantage at all, but I literally can relate to every black male student that I've ever had in just about every way. If they decided they want to study music, then we have more in common than I do with anyone else that I'm ever around. So there's a certain, I won't say responsibility, but I make sure that they understand where I'm coming from.
0: You can hear in DeMondre's response, A wisdom that comes from his unique life experience. Part of this experience is knowing firsthand what he called the struggle of the African-American male. He has a keen idea how to mentor his black male students because he himself is a black man. For DeMondre, his lived experience is also integral to his identity as a euphonium player. It's part of what makes him unique when I asked him about his unique identity, he drew a comparison between himself and Stephen Mead, a British euphonium virtuoso.
1: I really think what makes anyone unique is how you decide to include your life's experience in your music making. And that that's kind of a broad answer, but what I mean by that is the music that I mentioned earlier in our in our talk, that music shows up in the way that I play. You know, I have a certain connection to African American music, Black music, that my British white counterparts just don't have. You know, Stephen Me that hasn't spent any time with R and music, he hasn't spent any time uh, with hip hop music, and you know, when those references happen in modern music he may not get those. Whereas conversely, when a brass band reference happens in a piece of music, modern piece of music, I'll miss that and he'll crush it. And so in order for me to be even more well-rounded, I have to put my ears on Stephen Meat to see what choices he made on the same pieces that I play because I might learn something just by how he chose to handle something. And I can decide whether or not I want to adopt that into my into my playing. But I feel like the other thing that makes me unique is I feel like my ties to the orchestra repertoire and to non euphonium music you talked about me being an omnivore of music Ooh. i think the fact that i've spent a lot of time listening and playing to music that wasn't written for our instrument gives me a certain just uniqueness to the way i would play even our own own music you know i can say oh, i remember handling this aria this way, and this seems like a similar passage in this euphonium piece, I'm going to treat it with the same level of care or whatever that I would have this piece. And I and if I had not spent any time with this piece, I wouldn't have that perspective for this moment in a euphonium piece. The other thing that I think separates me specifically is I really don't care how people view my playing. And, and I don't mean that to sound harsh, but I'm less worried about If I'm keeping up with the Joneses or not, you know, the people who I'm supposed to be rivals with, you know, I don't care what they think or what people who consume us all think. You know, I hope they're into it, but it doesn't affect me if they're not. And so I'm never trying to please anyone other than myself. And so there's a certain honesty that comes out of that that's that's genuine, it's not contrived. Whereas I feel like if I were trying to keep up pace with the people who were in my same sphere, I might choose to play differently in even different repertoire. And I'm just not willing to to do that. You know, it's, it's, it's much easier to be who I am than to be who someone might want me to be.
0: of Demandre's uniqueness, same as for any musician, is the way his body fits together with his instrument. He has grown together with his instrument over the years, and he even has a mouthpiece named after him. When he told me how this came about, he used some terms that might not be familiar to non-brass players. Embouchure is a French word that means how you shape your mouth to play a wind instrument. Buzz is a word brass players use, They purse their lips together and blow air in a way that actually makes a buzzing sound even without the instrument. In fact, brass players often practice by buzzing through the mouthpiece when it's unattached to the instrument. Trumpet players can also buzz just with their lips and no mouthpiece. Now, my son plays the euphonium and trombone, so I asked him to help me make sure I got this part right. He said, yes, trumpet players may even produce a buzzing sound without their mouthpiece. But as you get lower in the brass family, buzzing without your mouthpiece is associated with a pinched and constricted tone. You want to have a steady stream of air that causes the mouthpiece to vibrate or buzz. That's what will produce the kind of beautiful sound that gives the euphonium its name. To get the best sound, you really need a good fit between your mouthpiece and your mouth. Here's how DeMondre got a mouthpiece designed especially for him.
1: A lot of times good things can come out of struggle. So <laughs> so, so, I played, throughout my undergrad uh, degree, the mouthpiece of choice for euphonium players was called a Shulky 51D. Pretty stock mouthpiece. You can buy it at any music store anywhere in the world. And most of the well-to-do euphonium players in the 90s were playing on that mouthpiece. And so I tried to play it. I just couldn't make it work. I tried off and on to play it. I couldn't make it work. I finally settled on a mouthpiece my senior year that I ended up playing through my graduate degree, always knowing that it still wasn't exactly like comfortable to play, but it, it was the best thing that I could find at the time. And at the time, there were no real euphonium mouthpieces. There were trombone mouthpieces that worked well on the euphonium, but mouthpiece makers didn't conceive of having a line of euphonium mouthpieces. That's only been since I've been a professional musician, you know, and I would say the Stephen Mead line, I think it came out in the late nineties, early two thousands. I think Brian Bowman had one or two mouthpieces at that time late nineties, early two thousands. And I was already teaching music by then. And so it almost became like something that you did. If you were a professional, you tried to get yourself a, a mouthpiece. But what happened to me was I developed like a really bizarre amateur problem in my third year of teaching at Alabama State. All of a sudden the mouthpiece just felt too small. And so my lips would swell at a ridiculous rate and I couldn't play. I literally couldn't produce a buzz. And so I went, oh my God, is this the end of my playing career or what? And so I started experimenting with some mouthpieces and found some that allowed me to play, but it wasn't comfortable or it didn't didn't make the sound that I was interested in. And so Terry Warburton, who's a mouthpiece maker uh, living in Florida, heard me sort of going through mouthpieces at a conference. You know, I was just playing a bunch of stuff trying to see, you know, and he came up to me and said, man, you sound great. It looks like you're looking for a mouthpiece. And I was like, yeah, I can't find anything, whatever went through the thing. And he gave me one to try. And I said, all right, I played it. I said, yeah, I like this. Here's what I would do differently. I wished it did this. I wished it did this, blah, 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 blah. And he was like, all right, take that one. And I want you to write down all the good things and bad things about it. And then we'll start designing one for you. And I went, really? You know, cause this was like a thing, you know, euphonium players didn't have mouthpieces. So I said, wow, okay, that'll be cool. And so I did it, sent it to him. And a couple of weeks later, he sent me three, what were going to be prototypes based on, you know, what we, what we had talked about. I was like, cool. So I tried those and, you know, we did that for maybe, eight or nine mouthpieces worth of communication. And then we got close enough that I flew down to Orlando to work with him for a weekend. And about an hour later, he had what I still play as as the Demandre model mouthpiece. And basically what, what I did was make a mouthpiece that was comfortable around my fairly fleshy lips, comfortable to play wide enough rim, but that wasn't too deep that you couldn't make the high sounds on the euphonium with some kind of resonance without them sounding dull. And so it really came out of an, a problem that I had, to be honest. It's the only one that I play. It's the, the DeMondre model. There's no variations of it. It's just the one, the one mouthpiece. And uh, I had no idea that he was going to uh, make it uh, for public consumption. I thought it was just something he was making so that I could play the way I wanted to play. But as it turns out, it's one of his top selling mouthpieces.
0: When Demandre got a mouthpiece designed specifically for him and the unique shape of his lips, it turned out to be widely popular. And I guess it is part of your unique voice, too, in a way.
1: It is. And, you know, because it's one of those weird things. Most black kids have fleshy lips. It's just part of our DNA. You know, it, it is what it is. And it, it almost feels like it's got a racist component to it. But it really doesn't. There is some truth to one size doesn't fit all and vice versa. So yeah, there is some truth to that. You know, the way your lips are designed, the way your teeth are designed, all factor into how successful you'll be on the instrument. I have a really great student that I used to work with. His name is Norman Flynn. He's actually a pretty well-respected American, young American conductor now. He spent five or six years as the assistant director of the Oregon Symphony, which is a major orchestra. Now he's the music director of the Bozeman Symphony Orchestra in Montana. He was from Montgomery, Alabama, a really great euphonium player, but not as great as he could have been because his setup didn't allow his musicianship to really be fully on display through the euphonium. It's an example of where I tried to appeal to him, the musician, knowing that euphonium wasn't going to be the way he tried to have a livelihood. And so he went off to, I think Norman went to Peabody and got a master's degree in conducting, orchestral conducting, and then he got his job right away. You know, so he's been, but you know, you don't get those kind of opportunities if you're not a really good musician. Had he chosen cello or something else, maybe his musicianship could have shown up even stronger through that instrument than it did with the euphonium. So there is something to, hmm. to choosing the right instrument based on your physical setup. Doesn't mean you can't do it, but there's something to considering it when you choose an instrument.
0: Well, it's part of our uniqueness too. And it's part of authenticity to find what path fits that unique setup that we each have.
1: Right. You know, I often think, you know, had I been a cellist, I probably would be a good cellist, you know, I'm not sure I would have been a good trumpet player. I'm not sure I would have been a good flautist, for example. But I but I feel pretty good about my level of musicianship would probably be the same if someone taught me like I try to teach, which is, you know, there's music and then there's the instrument and they do cross set, but they're completely different. Yeah, they're completely different.
0: For Demandre, there's an essential foundation of musicianship that undergirds and informs any application, playing an instrument, singing, or conducting. To be a fantastic euphonium player, you have to train as a holistic musician instead of narrowly focusing on your instrument. On the other hand, to really flourish, you have to find and develop your own unique voice. You can't spend too much energy comparing yourself to others. You have to focus on yourself.
1: And so what I did was just try to cultivate... Me, it sounds so selfish when I say it out loud, but it really isn't. What I mean was I just concentrated all of my energies inward. Like, how can I be the best euphonium player I can be? How can I be the best student, you know, that I'm allowing myself to be while trying to be a great euphonium player and while trying to have somewhat of a social life, you know, which was really important to me. And I just worked on myself. I'm certainly not perfect. I've made my share of mistakes and and will continue to make them. But I'm grateful that I didn't have a career path to chase. You know, I didn't even know what you could do as a euphonium player when I entered college. You know, I didn't know what job opportunities I had. I just knew I wanted to do this. I wanted to be really good at it and that it enriched me. It made me feel a certain way. And I'll let the chips fall where they may. And that's basically what happened the entire time. I did four years at the University of Alabama. I auditioned for the Marine Band my senior year. I made the finals. Long story short, they told me that fat people can't be in the military and that I wouldn't be able to safely lose the weight. I understood that, respected that decision. So for a career path, which was the number one career path, playing a military band, that was stripped from me. I was never going to be small. That was stripped from me. My senior year of college. And by then I'd already committed to going to the University of Wisconsin anyway, because I wanted to work with John Stevens because he showed himself to be the type of musician that I wanted to be. He was composing music. He was arranging. He was conducting. He was playing jazz. He was playing classical and he was good at all of it. And So I was gravitated to this guy. I wanted to spend time, you know, with this guy. I spent those two years, met the Soto Voce Quartet guys, did a bunch of cool stuff in grad school. And then I got a job that summer. I started teaching at Alabama State that fall. So again, everything just sort of meandered the way that it did. And I ignorantly fell into all of these really great situations with no preparation outside of taking care of me then the opportunity sort of came. And so I try to get the modern student to think more like that, but it's so hard because there's so many ways for them to see whether or not they're keeping up with the Joneses. Everybody's posting on social media. You can have a CD that's professionally produced in high school. There's no... Procedure to being a professional now. The blinds are so blurred. So, you know, someone coming out of high school holds themselves to the expectations that they feel like I might hold for myself. And that's kind of unfair. And I didn't have anybody like that to look up to, not even look up to, but to try to measure up to as a high school senior, you know, or even a college freshman or sophomore or whatever. But now, The request I get the very most in my inboxes is, is, man, how do I get my high register to sound like yours? How can I play as beautifully as you play? And and my answer back is just it takes time, like keep investing the certain kind of energy. There's no secret. There are no tips. There's no, you know, just keep walking your path. And as much as you can have your blinders on, the better. Keep concentrating on you. Don't worry about what I'm doing. Don't worry about what you know. The person in your class that lives in California is doing. Like just sort of stay, stay dumb, stay focused, and, and and it'll it'll sort of it'll work itself out if it's meant to. You can't force it.
0: It's something of a paradox that Demondre got where he is by focusing on himself. But now so many others want to be like him. His advice is: don't try to be like me. Find and follow your own path and focus on that. It reminds me of the mouthpiece designed specifically for him as an individual, but now a top seller. One secret of Demandre's success seems to be staying sharply focused on his own clear goals rather than trying to be like someone else or even just trying to be great.
1: You can't force it. I mean, you know, as much as we'd like to think we're making things happen, there has to be an opportunity first. And that we can't control. There has to be an opportunity, you know. Uh, I get a lot of people questioning, you know, how can I make myself stand out? You know, th- this and that and the other. Stand out for what? Well, just in general. Where there has to be something that you stand out in before you can stand out. Let's have the discussion once there's actually something in in place, whether it's a you know interview for a college teaching job or a orchestral audition or whatever it is. Like there needs to be something first. In the meantime keep working on being better. Keep working on being better. You know, find find that thing that you can improve and try to improve on it. At least at least be aware of it. If nothing else, write it down. Look at that thing every day and go, all right, I gotta get better at my low register. And then you can come up with a path to get better at your low register. And then it might show up when someone writes that concerto that exploits the low register. Then you'll be ready. I'm pretty fortunate that I've had a a very diverse musical life. The Sotto Voce Quartet you you mentioned, we were, uh, we started as a student ensemble at the University of Wisconsin. Three of us were in graduate school and uh, the other euphonium player, Patrick Schultz, was a senior, you know, finishing up his time there. And uh, because he did a double degree, he got a degree in euphonium performance and he got a composition degree. He was there for five years. So the quartet got to function for two years you know, under the tutelage of John Stevens, who we all went there to study with. And we had some success with, you know, national competitions and obviously some regional and state level competitions. And, you know, once we finished school, you know, we decided we would enjoy each other's company and we should maybe try to give it a go to see if we could you know, stay together as a group and, you know, get hired to play places and things of that nature. And we've been reasonably successful for two tubas and two euphoniums playing chamber music together. You know, we've been together for over 20 years now, and we've we've had the great fortune of, of traveling all over the world playing concerts. Uh, I've also spent some time uh, in a couple of different trombone quartets that I've had more of a a local regional uh, presence. Uh, I'm in a brand new one right now. As a matter of fact, we call ourselves 2059 because three of us live here in Tuscaloosa and the other one lives in Louisiana. And literally you take 2059 to get from one place to the next. And we'll be playing the International Trombone Conference this summer in Columbus, Georgia. So we're pretty excited about that. Having the opportunity to induct School ensembles, you know, Sanford Wind Ensemble, University of Alabama Orchestra, in addition to some professional conducting at the Eastern Music Festival, the Tuscaloosa Symphony, those are all been great. And uh, I feel like that all those opportunities have come my way because I'm still pretty musically curious and always have been. And so these were things that I actually studied in school. I studied conducting while I was working on all three of my degrees. You know, I studied trombone. While I worked on all three of my degrees, my third degree is in trombone, as a matter of fact, my doctorate. And so, you know, it's just the fact that I've remained interested in these things, you know, created those opportunities. When they were able to come up, I was able to say yes.
0: The way DeMondre shows up in all these diverse musical opportunities has given me great respect for him as a musician and a person. He describes his unique musical voice as something that grows out of his lived experience And I think it's also deeply rooted in his character. When you listen to Demandre the musician, you're hearing Demandre the person. Knowing Demandre certainly enriches my life. You're an inspiration to me, but also I'm just grateful for your friendship. I'm grateful knowing that you're out there in the world.
1: Um, I appreciate that. I think we're two peas in a pod, Beth. I really do.
0: (laughs) As much as I admire Demandre, you can imagine what it meant to me. For him to say that. If you would like to hear more from Demandre, look out for a bonus episode coming soon. Matt Watson, a Stanford University graduate and a fellow euphonium player, interviewed Demandre about contributions he's made to the euphonium repertoire. It's a fairly modern instrument, so composers have not been writing specifically for the euphonium for very long. Demandre has helped to build repertoire for the instrument by playing music originally meant for voice or other instruments. He's also commissioned new musical works. I think you'll enjoy his conversation with Matt about this. In this episode, you've heard excerpts from the Heritage Concerto, which Anthony Barfield composed for DeMondre Thurman. Hale's Self conducted the University of Alabama Wind Ensemble with DeMondre as soloist, this final concert of the 2017 Southeast Regional Tuba Euphonium Conference at the University of Alabama on March 11, 2017. Special thanks to my son, William McGinnis, another euphonium player who kept me straight on low brass terms and technique. I'm grateful for his help. Speaking of help, you may have heard this quote from Fred Rogers, whose mother told him, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. I've added some of my favorite helpers to the resources page on my website, hereinalabama.com. That's H-E-A-R-inalabama.com. You can also hear my full interview with DeMondre Thurman on my website. I'm Beth McGinnis, and this is Here in Alabama.